I am so excited to be here with Kate Fagan, the author of the upcoming book, Hoop Muses, An Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game. Does this need any more of an intro? I don't really think so. So the Locked on Women's Basketball podcast, it starts right now. Ogumba Wallet for the win. You are Locked on Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Hello and welcome. You are locked onto women's basketball. I'm Jackie Powell. I'm one of your Friday hosts. I cover the New York Liberty at the next and I help with the next social media strategy. And I've covered women's basketball nationally at other places as well at Bleacher Report, W Slam and many others. Thank you for making Locked on Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And remember, Locked on Women's Basketball is brought to you by everyone at The Next, a place where we cover women's basketball all the time, and we tell the stories that need to be told every day. And if you subscribe to us, you can get 50% off our partner site, The Equalizer, which covers women's soccer every day. And if you become a paid subscriber of The Next right now, you can get 23% off of our usual price. It's all in honor of the WNBA free agency period that we've just had that has been historic and how it's become a fixture in the women's pro basketball calendar. Also, Locked On Women's Basketball is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. But now that it's officially March, one of the most exciting times for women's basketball. I wanted to have a conversation with Kate to discuss her book, a book that I don't think anything like it has ever existed before. And the book itself could help us think about women's basketball in the way that it always should have been. Of course, we do this at the next and at Locked on Women's Basketball every day, but this book is incredibly intersectional. And it's, to me, it, it feels personal because my personal entry into the women's basketball space was not always about the game itself. It was about the intersectionality and about what the game represents and its values. And I think this book just does a brilliant job of bringing all of that together. So first we're gonna get to the origins of Hoop Muses, followed by looking at some of its wonderful details and then we're going to talk about pop culture footprints and why they matter so much. So, okay, Kate, hi, hello. Thank you for being here. That was my mouthful of an intro. I think where I want to start is if you could take me through the moment you spoke about in your acknowledgments in this book, the, the driving thought. How exactly did this book come to be? <laughs> You know, I wish I could say that there was like one specific thought that coalesced that launched it. I know, I mean, I remember I called my mom on a walk 
and I kind of talked her through what I wanted the book to be. And it was definitely born of the idea that a lot of like the history of the game, the mythology of the game, the culture of the game had never or wasn't, there hadn't been any like like true investment poured into putting it all in one place and sharing it in the way that you could look at any men's sport and there'd been, you know, coffee table books and photographs and you could buy limited edition prints of like famous moments in history. And it was definitely kind of like a, a convergence of my you know time at ESPN and different things I'd worked on and feeling like, you know what, maybe I'm going to try this from a new angle. And what if we tried to do something really fun and poppy and exciting and using telling a history, but using a, like a awesome illustrator to help make it feel really fresh and new. So that was the start of it. And it, initially I wasn't initially, I, I didn't have an illustrator, but the second I saw Sophia Chang's work, I was like, that is definitely the right person for this book. And, and then I thought it'd be really cool to have like a really insider take on it. And that's when Simone came on board and it just ended up being like a, a great team to bring this book to fruition. I love that. I love yeah. that. Uh, the illustrations, which we'll get to in a moment, are, I mean, they sort of make the book into a, like a comic book. And there are obviously some parts of it that have uh, comic strips. But I think that the feeling you get when reading it, it makes me feel like how I felt when I would read DC Comics as a kid. So yeah. I don't know if that's intentional, but I definitely <laughs> felt that. Yeah, it was it was absolutely intentional to bring, well, one, like the sequential art, you know, I, I came to learn terms I didn't know before, um, like sequential art as like comic book art. And there was a separate comic book artist from Sophia who created a lot of that comic books and then the comic strips. And yeah, we we one of the driving thoughts at the beginning of this book was, you know, if I'm going to, for example, tell the stories of like a 1930s team which because it's, you know, because it's a, a women's sport, we haven't, we haven't done like sexy documentaries about it or like there hasn't been a scripted show about it. There's not like 10 historians who have recounted this for us. So you're often working with like maybe one woman in history who was an archivist and like found this story and told it, but you're, you don't have a plethora of options. So the key thing, and also you didn't, I didn't want it to be like, I'm telling I'm telling this story from the 1930s and like, it's going to be black and white, you know, just by necessity. And I wanted to bring like a very like anachronistic pop to it. And so, yeah, it was really important that like Sophia, even if it's a story from the 1890s, something about the way she's illustrating, it makes you feel like, like it's fresh and relevant and new. And that was very purposeful. Yeah. I, I love that. And so yeah. Going to the the title of the book, I sort of want to know, how did you land on the phrase hoop muse? Well, I think in the, I think when we were pitching the book, like before we had a publisher, our stand-in title was Love and Basketball. Uh, but we were, we were, war like it was always a stand-in title because obviously the movie was so iconic that we were going to have trouble divorcing the book from the movie. People were going to think it was like a companion book or something, but that was our stand-in title. And then even after we sold it and we had our publisher, we were down the line with the publisher 
trying to come up with like what was going to be our final our final um actual title and i think it was simone who tossed out the idea of like looking at mythology and his like a very like old history and i think she might have even said in an email like like the muses or something like that and so it was definitely simone's idea to kind of use that phrase but i was actually against it in the beginning and for the reason that from a linguistic standpoint you even did it on on when you were introing it you have to very much concentrate to say hoop muses because mm. your brain jumps to the muses and so you end up saying like hu like it i had trouble wrapping my mind around it and then like my like linguistically it's a challenging phrase but it's just eventually it just be in my mind it was the perfect title and you know even though people like even though you can you say it now like you have to say it on a podcast but like it's a, it's a book so people are just looking at it so we ended up going with it and i i i it grew and grew in my mind as like the perfect title for the book even though i was reluctant at the outset yeah i <laughs> i didn't even think about the the enunciation of it all but now that you say it and now that yeah. i remember i'm like oh man okay that that is part of it you know you have to say hoop muses yeah you got to stay focused <laughs> yes <laughs> But something I do when I try to look at meaning and, and significance in, in all forms is I go to the dictionary. And so I was like, okay, let's look up the, di the dictionary definition for the word muse. And of course, there were two definitions, one that was more mythological. Mm -hmm. And then there was another that said um, a person or personified force who is the source of inspiration for a creative artist that's the one it is the one yeah and so i read that definition and i was like wow i was like oh yeah that this makes so much sense because and you're the author you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's putting these people and ideas in women's basketball history and it's putting it on like this i don't know if i want to call it mythological pedestal but it's putting it on a pedestal that it hasn't really always been on if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah i mean that i think if if you look at that like actual specific de definition i think in my mind the the creative artist who is drawing inspiration from these hoop muses is you know not necessarily just a young girl today who loves basketball like she is the creative artist who is stepping into the game and can take inspiration from these hoop muses who have throughout history also you know loved the game shared the game been a part of it and so i think that's that is what hoop muses means right if and it doesn't just have to be like you know, a young player stepping into the game for the first time who needs to look to history. It's also, I think, because of what you alluded to, because of the fact that it's, this isn't a history that is widely known, that even if you're 70 right now, you know, and, and loved the game, you might not know some of this. And like, you might, you, you could be the person who's inspired by these women who throughout time and history to much 
often um, social costs continued playing the game that they loved. So that once we kind of wrapped our minds around how impactful the actual term was, mm-hmm. and the, it, it just, it became impossible to go any other direction with the title. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so I think you alluded to this before, but I think I want to expand upon it. Who would you say this book is for and what would you like it to accomplish? Well, we when we were even out pitching the book before we found the publisher, you know, we had our materials and our pitch deck and we made it clear that we felt like this book would speak to across generations. Like we this isn't a this isn't a book for young kids because it's illustrated. Like that's we we made it clear that this was not like a picture book. You know, obviously there are pictures in it, but that's not what it was. Um, so we I think we even had the language in the pitch deck that like both from like a 13 year old who's just fallen in love with the game through an 80 year old who wasn't a benefactor of Title IX but l- always loved basketball even if they never got to play it in the way they wanted. We, we thought the book would speak equally to across those generations. So I mean, I think if you, if you like pinned me down and you were like, no, you can only pick one demographic, I, I would probably say that like, you know, like I would, I would feel like a, you know, an AAU team would love to gift this book. Or if you were a parent and you had a, a, a son or a daughter who had just fallen in love with the game, this book would be perfect for them. But I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's limited you know, it doesn't feel like it's limited in, in age frame. And we tried to build it in a way that it, that it wasn't, that it was very sophisticated in its own way across, you know, so that it would appeal even to an, like an older reader. I love that. I love that. And it, it it's interesting when you said AAU, it brought me back to covering high school girls basketball before the pandemic. And I would remember interviewing some of these young kids And they'd be like, oh, my God, we felt like we were the Golden State Warriors out there. And I was like, I was like, well, the (laughs) what about (laughs) did you watch the Washington Mystics in 2019 and see how they won the WNBA championship? I didn't say it in those exact words, but that was what I was thinking. And so I think about how we address going at that gap or going at that issue. I mean, I remember seeing a tweet from Kurt Miller, I think it was maybe right around WNBA draft time this past year in 2022. And he was basically talking about how during his draft interviews, he felt like not a lot of the people he was talking to had a really good grasp on the league's history and on the, the league they were going to be employed by, and, and who, who built it, and, and who were some of the older faces that aren't the most obvious, and even the, the role players in the league that aren't as known. So I feel like this book, and, and based on what you've said, it's sort of a, a way to attack that problem that's existed for years. Yeah. Well, because the problem you're articulating is like the age old issue of like of cultural capital or cultural significance in that 
it's I don't blame young girls who are on AAU teams or even college teams who see what the culture values within their game and use those cultural references because if you look at the lineage of the women's game, there have been so few moments where they were celebrated and honored and held up as culturally relevant. And if you're, if you're anybody who follows sports, like part of why we love sports and follow it is because you want to be part of the culture you want, like, whether it's like your, you know, whether it's your, your friends group or whether it's the larger culture, you want to know the cultural references. And so when women's sports has historically been excluded from that, the end result is that young girls growing up play the, playing the game, for example, are going to connect more with having a poster of Steph Curry than a poster of, you know, Asia Wilson or name your, I mean, I think that is changing though. And part of what the motivation with the, this book was, was to really celebrate and like, and show the culture of, in this case, the women's game as like this really, really dynamic culture built on this beautiful, really interesting history. And to kind of, to you know, it's not like it's going to fix the problem, but it's one piece of trying to solve that problem of why, why are you referring culturally to Steph Curry instead of Chelsea Gray? Like, there's a reason you're doing that, and I'm not blaming you because it makes sense why you're doing it. But, like, we need to close that gap that you see as much cultural value in name-checking Chelsea Gray as you see in name-checking Steph Curry. And all of that, like, that is not a single problem to solve where, like, one button can be pressed to solve it. It's, like, chipping away at the culture that has been created around men's basketball, that hasn't been created around women's basketball that we need to kind of build up now. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you open up the first couple of pages or the the cold open, as you call it, Mm. you're introduced to the story of Jacqueline Jones, who is a fictional player in Mm. what was the was it the year like 2072? I'm trying to remember. 2072. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and so the the narrative that is is played out in this cold open is that Jacqueline Jones is one of these young people who doesn't know she didn't know who Maya Moore was who she was right. being compared to in the the cold open and so I guess I just wonder is is there sort of a, a feeling you have where you're like, wow, you know, we hope that that's not the reality in, in 2072. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard because it's like, you, you need that kind of like <laughs> structural premise to like take you through the book is like becomes the engine of the book. But then ironically, the whole purpose of the book is to keep that future from actually happening like that. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like this, like, uh, I don't know, I guess you could go down a, like a black hole, right? Like, well, yes. if we actually did our job, then Jacqueline Jones in the future would know Maya more. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, even, but more like more than anything, what it was alluding to is twofold. I don't think m- male athletes are exempt from being ignorant of their own history. You know, it's not, it's not a prime, it's not a gendered issue. Yeah. It, it's just, it's not necessarily 
the wealth of knowledge or just the appetite for that knowledge is not always there. But I do think there's the, the, the second part of that, which is that, so it's not a gendered issue, but if you wanted to know the history of your game as a female athlete right now, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to do a lot of work. You'd be piecing a lot of things together. Like you couldn't just Google one thing and have your answer. There's just that, that information is not readily accessible. And so I think that was that it was part of like what we what, when we made this book, we were like, we want we want to mythologize the women's game because mythologizing our sports is part of what we do that creates connection and lineage and family ties and cultural ties. Like we mythologize our sports and we don't do that in women's sports or we very rarely do it in women's sports. And when we do it as a profound effect, there's a reason that every, like almost every conversation you have about sports, somebody name checks the 99 women's soccer team. Yeah. Right. Like, because we've mythologized them at this point, they've, they've had their 30 for 30 documentary and that's so rarely happens in women's sports, but you can see the power when it does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, coming up, we're going to discuss some of the remarkable history that's in Hoop Muses and sort of go into how Kate structured the book. But first, I want to discuss Nissan's most electric player of the week, and that is brought to you by the all-new 2023 Nissan Aria. So I had a lot of difficulty trying to figure out who would be the player of the week. Last week, it was Melissa Smith because she was absolutely brilliant during Athletes Unlimited. So I decided in honor of Hoop Muses, I would give the award to Jacqueline Jones. I've never seen her play <laughs> in my life, but the way in which she was described in Hoop Muses, it sounds like she's someone who will be inducted to the future W75 group. And so to expand upon that context in the cold open of the book, Simone Augustus is the, the person who comes to Jacqueline and, and brings her through this, this journey of, of women's basketball. And she didn't even understand Moan's comp, Maya Moore, which oh, such a compliment and was almost blasphemy. But anyway, Jacqueline Jones exudes a fierceness in her moves and ability to score everywhere. Her drives when she puts the ball on the floor have a fierceness and elegance that fictional New York Liberty fans notice immediately in the future in 2072. But just like the aria, which delivers on duality with its combo of fierceness and elegance, it is also a strong and the perfect SUV crossover. Jacqueline Jones, or someone like her, is also a player who doesn't just get it done offensively. She's a two-way threat that gets it done at both ends, just like the Nissan Aria. The 2023 Nissan Aria packs pin-to-your-seat power and premium intelligence all in on an electronic vehicle. The all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria. The electronic vehicle for people who love to drive. Shop now at NissanUSA.com. Okay. And back to the program we go. So 
I think from close to the beginning to around page 142 is some of this incredible history that I just had never even heard of. I mean, maybe there was some of it that I read in this other book. It was by Andrew Mariness, um, Inaugural Ballers, that came out recently. But that was just like a tiny bit of context to get you to understand the uh, gold medal team that he he describes in his book. But I mean, the folks at Fort Shaw, oh my God. I read that and I was like, so there has to be an Oscar nominated movie about the people at Fort Shaw. Huh. Like I just, where is this, where is this movie? So I guess what I want to ask you is there obviously was so, so much more history that you probably couldn't include. And so how did you decide what to include and what not to? You know, I think we, well, I know I all along felt like there was going to be room for as many people as I could find. All right. So our, like, it wasn't like I was going to leave somebody out who, or a story out or a team out who had done something amazing. So my parameters ended up being a deadline. Like at some point we had to send the book to the publisher and then my ability during that time period to uncover as much as I could uncover um, because like, and so that was really the only parameters. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like there were teams that, you know, I heard about who had really cool stories and I was like, yeah, they don't make the cut. It was more like, you know, okay, deadline to the printer, bunch of things happen after that, right? Like Brit- Brittany Griner comes home from Russia. You know, we, we don't have, you know, like we can't update the book there. Yeah. Brianna Stewart goes to New York and then Candace Parker goes to Los Angeles. Do I wish I had a chapter on like, super teams in the WNBA or like the summer of 2023, like, yes. And then there was like, so the limitations ended up being my own ability to find these stories Hmm. because like, you'll, you'll notice like, you know, there's a huge, there's a huge chunk where I'm missing the, like these iconic AAU teams, like not the AAU we know of now, but the way the AAU used to be structured, which ran women's basketball in like the 1940s and fifties. And like, you know, there was teams like that were associated with companies or they were associated with colleges, but not like we know them now. Like you could play on these teams for 10, 11 years. There was no like four year, what you didn't have to go to school there. So it was like this, this association that, we that is foreign to us in the modern era of basketball but i didn't find out about these teams until like i found this book called shattering the glass Mm. and and so then you'll see that like i worked a lot of these teams into the the end chapters of the book because we were past the time of being able to like lay out full chapters for them so you know the the parameters of like who got into the book and who who didn't like i wish there was a scientific way i used but a lot of it was just like trying to get as much into the book as possible and then like you know it's like one specific thing was like you know like i i think katie smith's amazing you know and i loved watching her at ohio state in new york but i didn't there was no specific story around katie smith that i needed to write a whole chapter and so then i then i it was because of katie smith that i included like the the artist who drew the top 25 WNBA players of the last 25 years because i was like there's no way Katie Smith doesn't get in the book at all. Yep. 
but I don't know a whole essay I need to write about her. And so it was like every moment where I saw somebody, I was like, well, they have to make the book. How can I, what can I build to make sure that like at least their name and face is in the book? That that was kind of like my very ad hoc way of, of getting this book done. For sure. I mean, oh man, I feel like there's a narrative around Katie Smith and, and mind you, I covered her for, it was a season when she mm-hmm. was coaching the Liberty in, in 2019, but there's like this narrative about like, oh man, like we can't forget about her. Like, I feel like it, maybe it was on the, the Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird COVID series that everyone loved and they were asking each other questions and one of them asked the other, you know, who, who's a player who was just so tough or, you know, is underappreciated. And it was Katie Smith who, yeah. who came to DT's mind. So it's, huh. It's, yeah. And, and there's like, there's women like that at, at every turn that I found, but like, you know, you look at Katie and she was, you know, her team at Ohio State was the runner-up to Cheryl Swoops' team in the title game, where Cheryl scores, I think it was 43 points. So it's like, you can almost kind of look and see, and she played at Ohio State, which obviously they were really good, but they didn't have that media mm-hmm. star power that a Tennessee or a UConn had. So like, you see all these reasons why at times she didn't get the same shine as other players. And I just didn't, you know, part of the reason of having like Simone curate it was like, I didn't want, I didn't want to forget that person, you know, like Deanna Nolan doesn't have her own essay, but there's a, there's an essay on the Detroit shock. Mm -hmm. And if you ask WNBA players, like she's top three of underrated players of all time. And so I just like include that in the book, like just as an asterisk, like also FYI, you should know Deanna Nolan was a baller. And if you don't know her, it's, not a fault of hers. It's a fault of our societal structure. FYI, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it was interesting. There was a, there were parts of this book where I read it and I was like, oh, that's the reason why X, Y, Z is like this. And so the part I'm referring to was the Euro life section. And so the fact that I was able to see, oh, their league started so early (laughs) compared to ours. Yep. Because I've been trying to think, well, obviously WNBA prioritization is coming at us fast and, and furiously. And I've been thinking about this interesting prisoner's dilemma that exists between the WNBA and FIBA. And I'm like, well, why, why does this exist? Why is there such an issue with the WNBA saying that it has the upper hand because it is the best league in the world? And then it dawns on me, it's like, well, those international leagues have been around longer. So they, that is their marker on all of this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, like you got Cynthia Cooper, for example, and now she has other issues around her given her college coaching, but like who's playing in Italy, in Spain, in the late 80s and early 90s when we didn't even have a league here. And so, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of that, that, which I hope is kind of peppered throughout the book of, yes, this is history, but it's really relevant to where our game is right now, why it is the way it is, 
what hurdles it faces as well as what assets it has. Like you can trace those things back, whether it's the NCAA and their, you know, you know, their takeover of the AIAW. Like there's just, there's so much history that informs why things happen the way they do now, which is just the biggest cliche in the world, right? Like if you want to learn about, you want to learn about the future, look at the history. But like in this case, we, ne we haven't necessarily had that opportunity in women's basketball to truly like look back and learn from it to assess where we need to be going. Yeah. And the other question that I sort of found myself thinking, okay, maybe there's an answer to this that I've been looking for this answer for years. And I think that was when I got to the, the section on Spartak in, in Russia and I've always been saying to myself, well, it's so strange that countries like Russia, Turkey, Hungary, they're, they're not the most liberal countries, but they have chosen to invest in the women's basketball world, which we associate with more progressive ideas and it's a progressive activity. And so I've always sort of been like, well, I just don't understand there's that weird cognitive dissonance. And yeah. Oh, did you come up with an yeah. answer? Well, I think it was that it, well, I think from some other research, I've found that the issue in the United States is the, the hard salary cap. And I'm sure that when the new CBA gets negotiated, that will be something that is discussed because international teams, they can just, those ownership groups can spend as much as they want. Yeah. And I think there's another sort of very, it wasn't until working on this book, because I have, I spent a lot of my career at ESPN trying to answer the question of like, how is it possible that a Russian oligarch is willing to spend a million dollars on Diana Taurasi and the United States, we don't like, how is that possible? Right. And like, what is the model that they are employing to allow this to happen? Like I, I have been to Russia numerous times to China when Maya Moore was playing in China and to try to answer this question. And I never really got an answer that satisfied me fully. But one thing I realized in reporting this, in researching this book more than reporting it was like, so here's a simple fact that blew my mind, which is that I'm from New York. That's not the fact, although it's related to New York. Um, New York state was the last state in the United States to start a women's high school basketball state tournament. Now that's, that surprises me because everybody associates New York with like progressive, like they're out ahead of all of these issues. But actually what you find when you go in the history of, in this case, women's basketball, was that it was, it was small, rural, often Southern, sometimes Oklahoma, Arkansas, Iowa, these small towns that cared about the women's game because it was seen as like a community event. And at every turn before the larger idea that it was um, unladylike, or unhealthy for women or not societally acceptable, local people in all of these small towns would go to the women's games in 
as high of numbers as would go to the local boys high school games. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something, and I'm relating this to kind of the European question, like, because one thing that was told to me, whether it was in Moscow or Ekaterinburg, um, where Diana and, and Brittany played for a number of years, owned owned by uh, an oligarch, and, but it was a mining company. Yeah. And one of the things they were like was like, these are just local people and it's something for them to do in Ekaterinburg to like be with their families, to get out of the house, to be warm. Sometimes it's really simple. And I think there's, I don't know, I'm sure, I mean, there's a lot of more geopolitical answers to this about why Russia supports women's basketball or like the club structure of soccer and then other sports that are often under this club structure. Some of that is true, but sometimes I'm like, maybe it's a fundamental, maybe it's more fundamentally simple in that if you're in a small town and this is a thing that you want to do with your family or more community, that is a foundational piece that I've now come to accept as like part of the history of the women's game in the U.S. and perhaps relevant to how we look at it elsewhere. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, when I also think about the whole, the European question and sort of why that is the way it is, I also tend to think about the, oh man, don't tell me I lost my train of thought. Well, to transition. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. It, it does happen. It, it absolutely yeah. does. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll think of it in. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> in, in 30 seconds. But it's. So many times during, obviously, the time, the 10 months when Brittany Griner was, was detained in, in Russia, people would ask me, they would say, well, what, why? Why? What, why is she over there? And so, you know, a lot of people didn't understand that the, the treatment over there, the treatment in one of the most repressive countries in the world for someone like BG before her detainment was actually quite good. And it's, it's a question that I think will continue to be, I guess, answered hopefully because it's an important one. Yeah. So coming up, we're going to discuss a term that I love I don't even know if it's a real one, but I just sort of started using it. But we're going to talk about pop cultural footprints and how much it relates to hoop muses and how we can get to that future with Jacqueline Jones celebrating WNBA 75. But first, so I'm someone who gets a bit hangry when I don't eat every three to four hours. It's not always the best when you are someone who covers women's basketball and is on press row during various times during the day. More recently, doing nonstop writing and reporting during WNBA free agency. Sometimes I value getting my work done over eating a full meal. It is not good, but we are human. So what do I turn to to make sure that I can not only function physically, but mentally too? I'm talking about Built Bar, which eases a lot of the hangry and uneasy Jackie moments. 
So what makes Built Bar so good? Well, for starters, they are covered in 100% real chocolate. That's right, real chocolate. And they come in unbelievable flavors like churro, peanut butter brownie, and coconut almond. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like candy while maintaining amazing macros. And what's even better is that they're healthy, only 130 calories, four grams of sugar, and a whopping 17 grams of protein. And you don't need to wait around to get a box. For years, we've been talking about ordering Built Bars at Built.com, but now, now you can get them at your local Walmart or Sam's Club. That's right. Head to your nearest Walmart today, walk into the pharmacy section, and grab yourself a box of Built Bars. You can pick up a four box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, or coconut puffs. You can also find a 13-bar box at your nearest Sam's Club. You can thank me and our friend of the show, Grandma Myrna, later. All right, now back to our program. So one of the things that I appreciate the most about Hoop Muses is its relationship with history and pop culture. And so I want to kick it off to you, Kate, and I sort of want to understand how you think these two elements are feeding off of each other in the book. So I think I, I took a page out of just recent WNBA history in in terms of how much traction and interest people have in, say, like GQ Sports Instagram about like the walk from the bus to the locker room and fashion. And that was a driving element right from the outset of like trying to even sell this book. We had a bunch of ideas included. Some we just ran out of illustration time and space. Like we, we actually wanted to do um, a fashion walk in through the ages where we even reimagined, let's say like Cheryl Miller in the 70s or 80s walking into a game, like what you, the fashion of the 80s would have been and like Sophia was gonna illustrate these things. We just kind of ran out of time and space and all of that. So, but, but with, the, with the jumping off point of seeing how much fans of the W, whether they were avid or casual, how much they connected with the culture around the game as much as being invested in the X's and O's, we, I knew that I wanted to show that the culture of women's basketball was really rich in its own right and also reimagine what that culture would have been like if it was given the same opportunities that men's sports was given and being able to reimagine a history where Hollywood treated women's sports like it treats men's sports and, and mm -hmm. how much value that that offers culturally as well as like video games and, and other assets like that. And so I think that was a key part of the book. And I think some of those ideas that we weren't necessarily able to execute on in this one, maybe we like do a volume two or something like that. But regardless of whether we do, the concept of making sure people understood how rich the culture of the game was, and also how the surrounding culture impact how you how impacts how you see women's sports was like a founding idea in Hoop Muses that we wanted to like reimagine things 
as well as celebrate what was in a really um, stylistic way. Right, right. Yeah. And so when I think about this term that I mentioned before, this pop cultural footprint, the thing that I've connected it to is who exactly is vocal and who is really caring about women's basketball and the WNBA, how it affects those people. Something that I would go around saying to people, colleagues and friends, and I even said it to Sabrina Ionescu, and she had no idea what I was saying, so I had to explain to her what I meant. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, well, where have all the Joan Jets gone? And so what I meant by that was uh, the New York Liberty, actually, they released a documentary. It was last June called Unfinished Business. And it was, the title is based on the song that Joan Jett, I think, wrote about or for them. But the it's sort of this, um, this tale of Joan Jett sitting at Madison Square Garden with a voodoo doll cheering for the Liberty. I mean, people... This is a memory that current head coach Sandy Brondello, it is stuck in her brain. She would come out. She was playing, I think, for the soul at the time. She would look to her left and she'd see Joan Jett sitting courtside with the voodoo doll representing her team. And so my whole thing is, well, where are these people that are not just famous, but people that carry pop cultural significance, where are they in in coming out to support the W and and be a part of it? That's that's a question that I've been asking a lot lately. Yeah. No, I think it's a really important question. I I think I have like kind of two thoughts that come to mind. One is that, you know, you you see when when pop culture and sports intersect the energy is kind of multiplied in the effect of it um kind of like what you're i mean the, the easiest example for like a former new yorker is spike lee sitting courtside at knicks games like there's there's like um there's a multiplying effect on what that does for the knicks and what that does for spike lee it's like a mutual sort of sharing of capital And, you know, I was kind of having this conversation with like, you know, like certain female athletes about how they need to spend their cultural capital on supporting women's sports. Because too often we've seen female athletes who maybe like transcend in some way. They need to then like show people that they think women's sports are cool. Not that they're now elevated above it, but that they're actually part of it and sharing it. And so I agree with you completely on like, you know, we can't, when I say we, I mean women's sports, but women's sports can't rely on like always needing Chris Paul and LeBron James to like, you know, to be able to do that work for them. Not that I don't think that that's important. It's just like having Chance the Rapper at Chicago's games is that multiplying effect. But I will say what I find interesting about this is like my wife and I never watched the L word growing up, like. Iconic Showtime, not growing up, but I was in my 20s, the iconic Showtime show. And we're re-watching it now, and it gets to, like, season two, season three. And the cast of the L Words, and this was probably 2005, the cast of the L Word, one of their members is a big women's basketball fan, and the group takes her to a women's ba- a professional women's basketball game. And it's a made-up team. 
in a made-up arena. And you, you get the impression very clearly that the WNBA was not willing to allow a real team to be used and a real arena to be used in the filming of the L word. And so I think that there's like a catch up thing that's happening, you know, like where I kind of blame the WNBA Hmm. for a chunk of this, where like from your outset until basically 2015, 2016, like the, the icons that wanted to be associated with you, you didn't want to be associated with. So like, there's also, I, I see there's more blame to go around than just like the culture doesn't care, which I obviously feel like we have come a long way and there's like certain things the W couldn't have done no matter what it wanted to do during certain periods of its history. But I think that there were cultural icons who wanted to be connected to it. And the W was like, you're not the right kind of cultural icons. And so I think that there's some like, there's some catching up to do around that as well. Hmm. That's that's fascinating. I mean, that example, it takes me down the, the rabbit hole of talking about the, the lack of fictional storytelling we have for women's basketball. I feel like we could do an entire podcast about just that. Yes, um, for sure. <laughs> but I think an interesting story that I've come across in asking current WNBA players about this whole pop cultural footprint thing is that this does matter to them. I mean, Benajah Laney, I know I keep bringing up the New York Liberty, but this is hey, a it's your wheelhouse for years. <laughs> Benajah Laney has a dream and her dream is to be playing at Barclays and to see Beyonce sitting courtside holding or wearing her jersey. This is a dream that she has had for a while. Whenever I I bring up Beyonce, she is more than willing to engage because in her mind, she keeps saying, well, if you guys keep talking about this, then maybe she'll come. Yep. But um, it's just, it's, it's something I think about a lot. I mean, I think about the fact that there's that iconic picture of Beyonce in the old New York Liberty jersey, right? And so it's like, okay, well, why don't you come? Only one step farther. <laughs> come to a game. Right. And it's just, it's like, there was, I think, a time, it was a year ago, where Benajah was in market on a league and team marketing deal. And Jay-Z came to see the Nets. And so Clara Wusai made sure to facilitate the two of them meeting each other. And I think Benajah tried to pitch to him, like, come to one of our games. Yeah. And so I just, I just wonder, you know, what is it going to take to get, like, huge names at WNBA games. I mean, I I don't want to say that like SNL's Punky Johnson is not cool to see at Barclays Center. I was very happy to see her when I was covering a game, but I just wonder what has to happen. Uh, Some of it, I think is just like a light bulb going off because I think like it's not, I understand why, why famous people go to courtside to NBA, but there's a part of me, like I said earlier, that's like, okay, you are using your cultural capital on this thing that doesn't need you. Mm. You know, mm. and like, so I'm not saying don't go to NBA games, but I'm like, if Beyonce showed up to one Liberty game, the sharing 
of what Beyonce is elevates the, w- the WNBA and is so impactful and has ripple effects. Whereas like she goes to a Nets game, like, okay, you know, it just, like, I think it, it matters because then people start buying tickets to Nets games being like, I'm part of this thing. And maybe Beyonce is going, so it's the cool, it's just like when a club has a line outside of it, you know, you're like, Oh, that's a cool club to go to. And I think it probably hasn't even occurred to Beyonce that like she could go to one single Liberty game and like, the ripple effects would be well worth her time in terms of impact for not just women, but black women. But I don't even think that light bulb has gone off. You know, I mean, I don't know Beyonce, so maybe it has. And she's like, but I don't want to go. Like no one knows, but I think some of it is just realizing, like realizing what I'm doing when I share a story, when I'm at a Knicks game is I'm trying to show people I'm cool because I'm at a Knicks game. And I'm like, but I need to understand that, like, I don't think this is true for me, but if I have a lot of value and cultural, like, people think I'm cool, well, then I need to share that. I can't just always be trying to get it, you know? And so, and I think people, like, I think that's why you're seeing a lot of NBA players start to talk about and post about the W's, because they're starting to realize that, like, the juice is worth the squeeze. Like, you go to one game, and it's so important for the league and those women, and it looks good for you. Like we, we have an element in the book about uh, sitting president Barack Obama yeah. going to a, a mystics game, the yeah. first sitting president to ever go to a W game. That was one night of his life. And it was the first time a sitting president had gone to a W game. And so it's like, this is important enough that I attend is like a huge statement to make. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder uh, again, it's like you put it perfectly. When does the, the light bulb go on? I mean, these are things that. Did I say off? I meant on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I said, I think I said off, but we want the light bulb to go on. We want it to go on. Yes. (laughs) Um, and, And so it sort of makes me think, well, I don't know. Does it take this whole narrative of WNBA super teams to sort of wake people up and be like, Oh, like, okay. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm like, it's not like I think, I think super teams were good for the NBA during one period of time. Mm -hmm. I'm, I I no longer need a super team. In fact, I would actively encourage against the super team in the NBA, Mm -hmm. but during a moment of time, it was like this storyline that just disseminated across the world instantly with the Miami heat, Mm -hmm. bam, you knew everything. And I think the WNBA is in this like inflection point moment as well. And to head into this 2023 season with this storyline that is like on a silver platter. So you've got people that are like curious or to use like my mom's favorite phrase, she jokes, curious adjacent, you know, it's a very like modern, like you don't have to, I don't have to be like, okay, well, so there's this player and she went to like, it's not, it's not hard to transmit. You're like, the Liberty have never won a title and now they have the best player in the world. And the Las Vegas Aces have a stacked lineup and it's glitzy Las Vegas against media center of the world. Like that's all you need to know. And I think the WNBA is in this moment where I think that's a really, really powerful storyline for them that people who maybe haven't tuned into the WNBA yet can understand really quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you, but also yeah, thank, you. thank you to our listeners 
for making Locked on Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And so, yes, Kate, I want to give you a huge thank you for hopping onto today's show. And for our listeners, join us tomorrow where Hunter Cruz and M. Adler are back for our Saturday WNBA Draft-themed show. And just a programming note, uh, Natalie Heverin was at the A-10 tournament today, hence why I'm here two weeks in a row. But she will be back next week, and the next time I'll be with y'all will be March 31st. So everyone, enjoy March Madness. Now make your second listen, Game to Game NBA. Every moment, every top performance, every result. Locked On Game to Game covers every game from across the NBA with local analysis that only Locked On can deliver. Follow Game to Game on Locked On NBA, available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. Before we sign off, I just want to remind y'all that Hoop Muses officially comes out on March 7th. Yes, yes. So Mm -hmm. that is coming up very soon. Make sure you all pre-order it. And um, this is Jackie Powell and Kate Fagan wishing you a wonderful rest of your Friday. So thank you all. Ogumba Wallet for the win. You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. 